Opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Good evening and welcome to this live broadcast and podcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting to you from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. I'm in the state of North Carolina and tonight we have, uh, again, we've never done a program like this or a podcast like this in the past, but tonight we will be doing a review of the new documentary that's on Netflix, and I know everybody doesn't have Netflix, and um, but we'll be playing the audio of the documentary from Who Killed Malcolm X. Um, definitely a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I haven't even watched it yet, so if you haven't seen it yet, you'll be hearing it for the first time, just like I will. Um, for those that may not know me you know i've been doing broadcast radio for a long time now since 2007 is when i first uh hosted my first radio program focusing mostly on politics and social issues uh some people may remember when i first launched on blog talk radio with a program called one black man's view in 2007 i then thought that Instead of several different black hosts, we all focusing on the same issues. Instead of just working off of individual accounts, if we came together and, you know, just put a bunch of programs together under one brand, which was Black Talk Radio. So Black Talk Radio, while we are a platform and have been a platform um, going on 12 years now, we did launch it on Blog Talk Radio uh, until we had some problems with some white people over there who had a problem with the name Black Talk Radio, got a suspension for doing nothing but being called Black Talk Radio. Uh, they cut the suspension short after people complained, um, but that let me know right then and there that we needed our own platform and thus Black Talk Radio Network was born. But over the years, I have always talked about and I don't want to use the word idolize because I think idolatry is its not something that we want to do or get involved with. Because when you practice idolatry, and, and I'm talking about specifically the worship of human beings, human beings who are fallible, human beings who have flaws, human beings who make mistakes, that when you practice idolatry, you might be blind. You might have some blind spots in regards to that person. And then that person becomes like a cult like figure for you. So I, I used to idolize Ma Malcolm, but now I use the word admire Malcolm. And I admire Malcolm X more than anyone of our leaders. 
um, followed by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, a lot of people have a mistaken belief that the two men towards the end of their life were on opposite or yeah opposite ends of the spectrum when they were basically coming closer together coming and they only met one time in person okay met once in, in person but they were coming closer together uh, especially after Malcolm well after Malcolm left the nation of Islam after becoming disillusioned uh, with Elijah Muhammad and went on his spiritual hajj as they call it um, Muslims call it where they go to Saudi Arabia and go to the holy cities which I was over there you know um, during the time of Ramadan and what have you when I was in the Gulf War but that's when I first really started uh, hearing about Malcolm and studying his life and studying his views I had a copy of Malcolm X's biography by Alex Haley and by the time I finished that view my whole world view had changed. I knew that I could not stay in the U.S. military and be a part of a, a imperialist army, if you will, going around the world oppressing non-white people or anybody that didn't buckle down and do whatever the billionaires and and multi-millionaires and the corporations wanted these countries to do and giving up their resources and just really trying to control their countries and they and they still do that today but after reading his biography my worldview had changed and i knew i i could no longer be a part of such a thing i started getting feeling guilty you know especially since where i worked at in s3 um had a top secret security clearance and i was seeing just how many civilians they were killing with them bombs and I was in the first Gulf War um, it was Desert Desert Shield I was one of the first ones to go on advance party um, Desert Shield it turned into Desert Storm was what they named the campaign I still got my course my campaign ribbons and all of that but after reading Malcolm X's biography I could no longer um, feel good about myself um, and, and continue on a path through the U.S. military because I was actually doing pretty well in there, advancing in, in rank. And, um, you know, I could have easily made a career out of it, but I, Malcolm, reading Malcolm X's biography, that really changed me. And then, you know, the Internet wasn't that big back then. It was just in its infancy. Um, but then once, you know, we were able to, as civilians, get onto the Internet after it had been built um, and people started uploading content to the Internet. And I was able to see these old interviews, you know, films and even audio uh, recordings that had been uploaded to uh, different websites. And then YouTube came along and, you know, a, a wealth of information about Malcolm X can be found there. Um, and him speaking in his own words and not others speaking, you know, about about him. And the more I learned, the more I, beca I, I um, began to admire this man. And he's really had a big impact. Um, and then, I mean, it's just it's just a testament to his spirit and just how how beloved he was. I mean, I was alive when he was alive, but I was just a little baby. Okay, and so it wasn't until I was 20, how old was I when I deployed the Desert Shield? I think I was 21 or 22, 
No, I was about 23 because I had been in about three years already. So I was about 23 um, years old and it just really changed my life for a dead person to change my life like that. And, you know, um, and not even from a spiritual uh, perspective, but just from a, a geopolitical worldview perspective and just, you know, all the things he espoused, especially towards the end of his life after his spiritual transformation. And after he said in his own words, he started thinking for himself. And I think for me, the thing that stood out to me the most was his willingness to accept new information, um, his will, his uncorruptible uh, character. Um, but really, you know, when you are so strong in one set of beliefs, but you get presented with new information and you process that information and you don't, you're not stubborn and you take that information and you process it and then you change your views accordingly. That's what impressed me the most about Malcolm uh, uh, towards the end of his life. Um, a lot of people, though, they like to focus on his fiery speeches and calling the white man the devil when he was part of the Nation of Islam. And, you know, we'll see people share memes and clips of that period of his life, but mm, they, they don't want to share the stuff and the positions that he started taking after his spiritual transformation, after his mental um, transformation or his intellectual uh, growth they don't, they don't like sharing those clips. You know, it, it was after he left the Nation of Islam that he began to inspire um, a lot of young people um, to go on to create like the Black Panther Party, um, which, I, you know, I really like the Black Panther Party and what they stood for as well. And oftentimes, as I was talking to somebody else the other day, they were saying that the Black Panther Party was a black nationalist group, and they certainly were not a black nationalist group. Uh, they were socialists. They were democratic uh, socialists who were involved in politics and also in creating social programs that did not exist anywhere in the United States. The United States actually uh, copied many of their programs, social programs like, you know, uh, uh, food assistance and uh, community medical clinics and things uh, uh, along those lines, you know. Um, and then, you know, of course, they're most known for patrolling the police, you know, with their guns and what have you, exercising their Second Amendment uh, speech right, rights. But Malcolm X inspired uh, them more he inspired them more than any other figure. Um, and, you know, behind Malcolm X, I really enjoy the teachings and the perspectives that I learned, um, you know, from members of the Black Panther Party. I actually had the pleasure for a couple of years to actually uh, be the sound engineer for a podcast by uh, a married couple. Both were former Panthers. One had been a political prisoner or and living in exile in Cuba at one time and um and they had created a new formation and they were in their 70s well 60s at the time but they're probably in their 70s now and they created a formation in memphis tennessee called the black Auto uh black autonomy uh federation and then you know shout out to uh brother ross up there in canada who was uh living in los angeles when the Black Panther Party was at their heyday, but, you know, he never really joined the party, but he was a Black Panther 
cub. And that word, the child, that word, the children, or was the children who benefited from the Black Panthers' uh, social programs and, and um, you know, their humanitarianism. And so, you know, I got to work with him. Um, I actually reached out to him today to see if I can get an interview with him concerning health care in Canada as they have single-payer health care and we're, um, many of us are fighting for Medicare for All, which is single-payer health care. So, you know, I've just been fortunate uh, over the years of to not just those two, but to be in contact with and speak with uh, former Black Panther parties. But the root, of course, all goes back to Malcolm X. Okay, so tonight I'm going to host this film review. And if people choose to participate, have a discussion session after we play the first episode of the film who Killed Malcolm X. Now, this is a documentary film by a black filmmaker, historian, activist, and investigative journalist. And I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but I think I believe you pronounce it Abdur Rahman Mohammed. And uh, tonight we will just be discussing episode number one, which is titled Marked Man. And we will do uh, follow-ups to this until we get through all the episodes and the way they're displaying it on Netflix, they have it like season one. And I'm like, wow, what is there going to be a season two? Now this is a documentary film. This isn't fiction or anything like that where you have several seasons if it's popular. Um, but so I was kind of curious about why they, you know, call it season one, but it has about, uh, seven seven to eight different episodes uh each one is under an hour and so we will be hosting these film reviews and discussions on this film who killed malcolm x and we do invite you uh after we get through this film this uh episode uh to give us a call at 704-802-5056 704-802-5056 and you hit the star key twice to comment if you're on listening on Black Talk Radio Network, that phone number is listed uh, for the program description for tonight's BTR News with Scotty Reed. Um, and before we get started, um, just want to say thank you for some recent donations that that came in. Uh, the Black Talk Radio Network is managed by a nonprofit, Black Talk Media Project, and we don't apply for grants from these different corporations or these different foundations because um, we value our independence and our autonomy. And once you start taking money from people, they think they can call the shots. And often people, matter of fact, Lorenzo uh, Camboa Irvin is the one first person I heard talk about the nonprofit industrial complex where they control you through the money that they fund you because then you get you getting paid a little nice salary uh, and what have you you get addicted to that and then when when they make their suggestions about you change this and change that then you're likely to acquiesce to those suggestions which are really demands okay you're you're willing to change because you don't want to lose that money so this has totally for 12 years been uh funded by listeners and the readers of our platform in our different radio stations so please go to blacktalkradionetwork.com make a donation today 
um, if you enjoy social media, um, but you find yourself being put in uh, these different jails, Facebook jail, Twitter jail, and all that kind of stuff, and you're being censored uh, unfairly, uh, we did launch in 2016 a social media platform called BTR Community, and you can find it at btrcommunity.com. Um, we don't have any advertisement or anything, and that's just another way for us to do some fundraising. Um, you can get a subscription for just $24 a year, which of course breaks down to $2 a month. Listen, if you don't, if you don't support us financially, um, we'll have to close up shop. That's just unfortunately how things work in a capitalist society. You need funding. Um, I, I guess in any society, if you want to do something and have something that you're going to have to support it financially. People put their time and energy into stuff, but it also uh, costs money to do these things. So we hope that you will uh, continue to support us. And if you haven't support us, supported us financially, we hope that you will uh, start. All right, so with that said, let's uh, go ahead and get into this documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? And this is episode number one, Marked Man. My guest tonight, Malcolm X, once the number two man in the black Muslims, now broken with Elijah Muhammad. He says he's a marked man and that a number of attempts have been made on his life. Malcolm knew he was going to die by someone's hands. It was coming. He was predicting it, even. Malcolm spent the night of February 20th, 1965, in the Hilton Hotel. He had a big rally the next day. He wanted to find a safe place that no one knew where he was staying so he could collect his thoughts. He was awakened by a phone call in the morning, and the person on the other end of the line said something that let him know that someone knew where he was at. That he could be gotten anywhere, essentially. Called his wife, Betty, and he said, I want you to come, and I want you to bring the girls. And that's what she did. My wife was pleased that it was a clear, bright Sunday morning. And we walked into the ballroom. We sat about eight to ten rows from the stage. I could see Betty and I think one or more of the children with her. I got there a little bit early. And when Brother Malcolm came in, it was the first time I'd ever seen him where he looked a little harried. So the pressures were getting on him. He knew at that point that time was running out for him. All the signs were there. And that's why none of his invited speakers that were supposed to appear on that stage with him that day, none of them showed up. Everyone knew that this man was in trouble. This man was hot. I remember him saying, the way I feel today, I shouldn't even be here. And myself and about four of us people backstage, we said, well, why don't you go home? People will understand. You know, you've been under a lot of pressure 
over the last three weeks. And he said, no, they want to hear me, what I have to say about the firebombing. As many of you know, Sunday morning, about three o'clock, somebody threw some bombs inside my house. I'm telling you these things because it has reached a point where I feel that black people in this country need to know what's going on. And I'm talking about an organization which I had a hand in building, which I had a hand in organizing. By the time he left the Nation of Islam, Malcolm had a lot of enemies. The Nation of Islam was a pure dictatorship. Elijah Muhammad was at the top. And Malcolm was seen as a traitor because he had turned on his leader who had raised him up from a common criminal and put him on a pinnacle before the world. Also, the federal government, the FBI, was definitely afraid of someone like Malcolm X. And one of the most perplexing details about this story is the fact that there was an absence of any kind of police force in and around the Autobahn that afternoon. This was uh, very strange, especially given the recent threats that were made on his life. Usually at the rallies at the Audubon Ballroom, there'd be up to two dozen police officers stationed outside. And on that day, there were only two uniformed officers, and they're stationed upstairs inside, away from the ballroom. So the deterrent effect of having law enforcement present was not there. It kind of gave a kind of menacing vibe to the whole scene. You know, where was this police presence? Try to remember just exactly what happened. Well, he had just got up to open up, and um, he was speaking. I don't remember exact words he was saying. Malcolm goes to the rostrum, and he gave the greeting. At that point, uh, rumbling broke out behind us. And everybody in the place naturally turned around to look. I remember Malcolm was raising his hand saying, all right, everybody be cool now, or something to that effect. I said to myself, why don't they cut that out? I want to hear Malcolm unfold this program. And a burly, dark-skinned man walked up to the stage and pulled from under his coat a sawed-off shotgun. And uh, just then, the gunfire went off. Next thing I know, two other fellows jumped up. The shooting was finished up. I remember there were so many shots that were fired. It was like warfare. I saw people crawling on the floor. So I got down too. And my children were crying, you know, what's going on, what's going on, are they gonna shoot us? Then I saw um, someone look in amazement to the front. I knew they had shot my husband. I ran down and I jumped up on the stage. And his shirt was open and I saw all these bullet holes in his body. And he was gasping. And I remember thinking to myself, he's going to die, he's going to die. 
My husband was all I had. I mean, he was, he was everything to me and my children. He said that, uh, that he'd always love me and provide for us. We're not brutalized because we're Muslims. We're not brutalized because we're Catholics. We're brutalized because we are black people in America. If you're looking at the genealogy of the anger and activism in this country, we see lots of it descending from Malcolm. If they want us to turn the other cheek, teach white people to turn the other cheek. And if they want us to love our enemy, teach white people to love their enemy. Malcolm was the primary articulator of our cause and our case against America, against white supremacy in the United States. Black people in this country have been the victims of violence at the hands of the white man for 400 years. Is that different 53 years after his death? Not really. When someone attacks you, when someone comes at you with a club, with a gun, despite the fact that you've done nothing, he tells you, suffer peacefully. And how long can you suffer after suffering for 400 years? We declare our right to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. For those who love Malcolm, it is a really, really intense relationship with his memory. Malcolm spoke to me at a time when I was a very angry young man, and I fell in love with him. I was the victim of a police attack when I was only 14 years old, and it was racially motivated. One quiet Sunday afternoon, myself and my cousin, I believe it was in ninth grade, and we were just hanging out on our bikes. Me, him, and his girlfriend, a young white girl. I was just chatting with the young lady, and this evidently enraged the police. You know, how dare these black boys date these white girls? They did a fishtail, you know, you know, jumped out the car. They grabbed me by my afro, and they said, you know, you like dating white girls? Nigga, that's what you like to do? And they flung me against the car, and one of them came up and gave me a nice knee. You know, I'm 14 years old. They threw me in the back of the car, and then they just drove around Providence and terrorized me. They started talking about how many brothers they threw in the Providence River. You remember Pookie? You remember Ray Ray or Johnny? You know what happened to them, didn't you? You know, they're at the bottom of the Providence River, that kind of talk. Then one officer looked to the other officer and he said, did he say something? Did you say something, boy? Say one more thing and we'll split your head like a goddamn grape, okay? I remember there was a a paralyzing fear, just trying to figure out what was what was going to become of me. You know, what are these what are these guys going to do? All I could do was just sit there, you know, 
and accept whatever my fate was going to be, you know? Um, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Every case of police brutality against a Negro follows the same pattern. They attack you, bust you all upside your mouth, and then take you to court and charge you with assault. What kind of the first time I heard his voice, what really attracted me to it was the fearlessness of it. You speak as a black man, a black man whose patience has run out. The manhood in it. The day of the sit-in, the crawl-in, the cry-in, and the beg-in is outdated. The power of this man's courage to say this stuff, you know, it was, it was irresistible. It changed the entire trajectory of my life. That's the reason why I went to Howard University. That's the reason I became a black militant activist at that moment. We all had a story or know someone who's been jacked up by the police. And that's what Malcolm represented for us. That black man that wasn't going to take the shit anymore. Malcolm's death never sat right with me. There were too many unanswered questions. And for the better part of 30 years, I've dedicated my life to understanding this story. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a master's. I'm not what you would call even a professional. I have no shame about that. Just a regular brother who felt that Malcolm deserved justice. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Abdul Rahman. I'll be your narrator this portion of the tour. On behalf of Arlington National Cemetery Tours, I'd like to welcome you all to Arlington National Cemetery. This is our nation's most sacred place of remembrance. Abdul Rahman Muhammad is without question the most knowledgeable person about Malcolm's murder. Um, he's been an independent researcher working on this um, for a good number of years now. Look to the driver's side, the large memorial there in the center. He has invested hundreds of hours tracking down direct first-hand evidence of the conspiracy to kill Malcolm X. No one alive has done more to solve Malcolm's killing than Abdurrahman Muhammad. State of state of Mississippi to become the first field secretary for the NAACP at that time. Early on, I had read enough to think that the case was a sham. All right, that it was a fraud. I had read enough to believe that the killers were still out there. It's been a great honor and privilege to share this rich and auspicious history with you. Never been afraid of the truth. I always wanted to know what is the real story. Whatever it is, I'll deal with it. I decided that, you know, if it was ever possible for me to find these people, that I would find them. I mean, this is Malcolm X we're talking about. It was a Sunday. I had the homicide duty. Usually, there wasn't much homicide activity, you know. Uh, certainly not in the afternoons. I was in a bar, dancing. And, you know, the dancing in those days was a lot of leaping in the air. I remember the name of the place, too. It was called Ondine's. 
it doesn't exist anymore. It was on, I think, 57th Street, right under the bridge. I heard somebody say, you hear Malcolm X was shot. In this whole bar, there was one booth with a telephone. And it was occupied. But I had a badge, you know, so I took my badge out and I went over to the booth and knocked on the thing and the guy looked up and I said, show him the badge, out. And I called Manhattan North Homicide. They said, Mr. Stern, where have you been? We have been looking for you. Chief, could you describe what happened here today? At about 3.15 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, uh, there were about 400 persons present in the ballroom here representing an organization headed up by Malcolm X. There were no police at this meeting, were there, Inspector? There were no uniformed policemen assigned inside this ballroom. When the police arrived at the Autobahn, there was no sense of urgency. And this was noticed by a lot of people. Almost as if they knew this was going to happen. Almost as if they wanted it to happen. The police, they looked so nonchalant. It just really, it angered me when I saw it. They were just strolling through the Audubon ballroom like they were on some Sunday stroll in Central Park. And people were on the floor, chairs were overturned. People were still crying and screaming. The crime scene was a total mess. The whole place was in total disarray. There was nothing to see at the scene that would have helped me as a lawyer on the case. We knew that Malcolm had stood up in front of a very crowded ballroom and that the shooters massacred him in the presence of his family. Boom, 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 they just blew him apart. We have found one weapon at the scene, a shotgun, which I'm sorry I cannot describe. But sword or shotgun? Sword or shotgun. Actually, we knew that there were three kinds of weapons. There was a shotgun, there was a 45, and then there was some sort of a, like a Luger. Where was Malcolm hit? He sustained one shot uh, in the uh, lower right chin and the others hit him in the uh, chest and uh, body. I knew that uh, one of the shooters, one carrying a 45, had run and was shot by one of Malcolm's bodyguards. He managed to stagger into the street, and then the mob tried to kill him. By then, the police had finally arrived, and they rescued him from almost certain death. He was immediately, you know, arrested. And he was found with a weapon. So that was kind of case close for him. What bothers me the most is that the other gunmen got away because there was no police. Were it not for the fact that one of Malcolm's security details shot this man in the leg, all of the assassins would have got away. Law enforcement did not secure the scene of the crime. In fact, there was a dance scheduled for 7 p.m. that evening, and the ballroom was cleaned up and prepared for the dance, which went on as scheduled, with the bullets probably still in the wall. 
He made the, the process of the investigation seem haphazard at best, botched at worst, maybe convenient to someone. It's just one of the reasons why many people have continued questions about the assassination and the role of law enforcement either actively or passively in this happening. Did people know it was coming? Did they get the right guys? It was just so many stones still unturned. And it just kept bugging me and bugging me. Somewhere in my path, you know, I decided that I, I need to drill down on Malcolm's case. My initial research began in the FBI Hoover building. I've gone through the files in the Library of Congress, you know, anything that I could get my hands on to get clues as to who is responsible for this uh, horrific crime. But I've never seen the district attorney's case files or any evidence from the crime scene. So we have a number of uh, collections at the archives related to Malcolm X and the assassination of Malcolm X. There's the DA's case files, okay. homicide case them, files, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and then there's the NYPD photograph collection. And if we look in here, this is the NYPD photo unit Manhattan's logbook. So this book would have been at the uh, precinct? This would have been at the precinct. Mm -hmm. Every time an officer comes on duty, they sign in, they sign out, um, they get a call. And then you see here on 345... 3.45 is when the call was made. To the Audubon Ballroom. It's a photograph scene where Malcolm X Little, male Negro, 39, was allegedly shot by unknown perpetrators. Photos of ballroom and surrounding area taken in black and white in color. Just very rare. Very rare for do those two color colors. Do those color photographs exist? Those color photographs do exist. And here's some copies of what wow. of those. So here we have backstage at the ballroom. So there's the, the stage of the ballroom. And you can see where they've circled here. All those chalk marks, those are, those are bullet holes. That is incredible. This is the stairwell. Some of the assailants ran out the back stairwell. Um, I think there's something like 65 photographs of this scene. So was, was there a lot of evidence collected at the scene? There was. What we have is what's in the New York DA's case files. So now that the DA has turned this over to your office, is it now considered a closed case? Anything that the DA's office turns over to us would normally be considered a closed case file. Um, but that doesn't mean that cases still can't get reopened. Well, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Right. If, for example, this case could be reopened, right. it's quite probable that this material would be utilized. Yeah, that's true. You know, could always be reopened. Could always be reopened. And that's evidence, not just history. Right. Did he ever discuss with you the likelihood that he would be assassinated? Uh, yes, we discussed it many times. Several attempts had been made on his life. The police and the press tried to make it look he bombed his own home, which was ridiculous. 
Uh, I mean, he had no insurance uh, on the furniture or uh, himself or anything like that. And uh, now I guess they'll say he shot himself. We're in a process now of trying to interview every person who was in the ballroom and get as much information as we can to find the killers of Malcolm X. The assignment for the police was to interview every single person that they could identify. Who'd you sit next to? Who'd you sit next to? Who do you know? Who did you see? Did you see what happened, no, sir? I just came in when it all happened. All I could see was uh, smoke and shooting. Did you see what happened here? No, 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 no. <laughs> I see two men rushing to the, to the platform. They knew almost nobody to start with, and then they began to find names as they went through. I mean, it wasn't Sherlock Holmes, you know. Who'd you see? Did you recognize anybody? Some people did. There are two fellas, one was a black Muslim, ran and started shooting. They were black Muslims? Yes, sir, they were black Muslims. Was that recognized? The day of the murder, which was a Sunday morning, I was laying across the couch with my foot up, and I heard it over the radio. Four days later, they came and got me. The fact is, I spent 20 years in prison for a crime that I didn't commit. Watch your wire. Has he signed the statement, sir? On February the 26th, Norman 3X Butler, who is a lieutenant, he's arrested. And then on March the 3rd, Thomas 15X Johnson is arrested. We were able to uh, arrest the third suspect this afternoon in the assassination of Malcolm X. You're going to be charged uh, with acting in concert with the others now arrested. These people were all members of the Nation of Islam. They were extremely militant faction. Butler and Johnson were from the Harlem Mosque, Mosque Number 7, Malcolm's Mosque. From the very beginning, the focus of the investigation was on Harlem and on Butler and Johnson because they were known enforcers in the community who had been arrested for other crimes and they were the prime suspects. I was always one of those few out front. So the police officers came to us because we were all in effect on their radar. But that doesn't mean that we had anything to do with anything because actually we didn't. The only thing they had was very contradictory eyewitness testimony. That's all they had. There was no physical evidence to speak of. I thought it was a failure. I thought it was mishandled from beginning to end. The NYPD had a few shooters and they were relieved, as we all were, uh, to death. Relieved to death. If I had been chief, it would have been different. Uh, that's not the way I worked. If you get the shooter, you better get the guy who sent him. Initially, after talking to witnesses, the NYPD let it be known, and accurately, I should say, they were seeking five killers, that there were five men who were part of this team, and they were searching Harlem and other places looking for them. But after they got Butler, Johnson, and Hare, the NYPD said, case is 
closed. We locked up Butler and Johnson in a matter of a couple of weeks, which was quite a feat. But is it possible that you arrested the wrong guys? Uh, why, would you, why would you ask me a question like that? How can, I, how can any human being answer a question like that? It was they were proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Are you going to say it's not possible? Are you going to say that? If I put you in a camera, are you going to say that? Are you going to say that? Answer me. Are you going to say that? Okay. Then we're in the same boat. When Malcolm was killed, people were just torn apart by what had happened. What did Malcolm X mean to you? He was a hero to me. He stood out among all black people. Why did you show the white man where was that? That's right. It meant a great deal to me and my people. I couldn't have cried anymore, I don't believe, if I had lost my mother. Sister Betty asked me to be a pallbearer. And uh, at that time, I was feeling very full of grief, unlike any that I had ever felt before or since. And you're saying that you believe this was paid for by whites? Yes, by white people. Anytime a black man in this country stands up for his constitutional rights, he dies. I know it was no accident from what I hear Malcolm X say the other night. Who do you believe is responsible for Malcolm X's death? The white death? power structure in America is behind it. They, and they, they are quick to capitalize on by saying that uh, one of his own kind did it, but they put it up to be done. All of us was thinking then that the hidden hand behind Malcolm's assassination was the big boys down in Washington. But that maybe members of the nation of Islam probably were the trigger man. Malcolm X's pallbearers vow vengeance on the black Muslim's leader, Elijah Muhammad. They feel it is he that ordered Malcolm's execution. What's going to happen now, do you think? What's going to happen? There's going to be a whole lot of hurt before this whole thing is over. That's what I think. Because of his death, whoever did it, Muslims or whoever did it, there's going to be a whole lot of hurt. But Malcolm's followers wanted to take some heads. Okay? They want revenge. Two days after the murder of Malcolm X, an explosion destroyed the Muslim mosque in Harlem in what appeared to be the first act of retribution for the murder. Elijah Muhammad himself is said to be a marked man with followers of Malcolm X swearing vengeance. If you would like to follow anyone against me, go ahead and do it. But I fear for you. The Southside Chicago home of Elijah Muhammad was under heavy police guard today. Squad cars were posted at the front and rear. All who sought entrance to the house were frisked by Muhammad's own guard force, the group of husky young Negroes known as the Fruit of Islam. It's the house that the messenger built. That was the living room there. That was the bedroom there. And the secretary worked on the third floor and there was his offices there. I lived here, here for nine months when I came to Chicago. On the third floor in the back, there was an apartment back there. 
I was the secretary of New York until the Honorable Elijah Muhammad brought me here to Chicago in 1960. Meeting with reporters in his living room, Muhammad had this evaluation of Malcolm X's killing. Now Malcolm uh, is the victim of his own preaching. He preached violence, and so he became the victim of it. Malcolm X said that the black Muslims were trying to kill him, and he was going to name those yeah. he thought would commit the crime yesterday before he was shot. Did <laughs> you comment on that? I wasn't there, but I don't believe that any of my followers was there. had nothing to do with it at all. It was predicted that they would blame the Nation of Islam. Elijah Muhammad even said that. Elijah Muhammad and his followers claim innocence in the execution of their most famous defector, Malcolm X. Elijah Muhammad told everybody, my believers, do not lay a hand on our brother, Malcolm X, because he is not aware of what he is doing. Give him time. Do not raise a hand against Malcolm X. He said that in the temple. I was there. I said to the government of America, we are a peaceful people. We have always tried to obey the law. We do that. I teach my followers to do it. His words would leave Malcolm alone. I repeat. To all of his ministers and to all of us, leave Malcolm alone. And those who loved him and obeyed him, that's exactly what they did. You don't have lentil soup today? Lentil soup? Yes. We do have it, but we don't put on the buffet. If you want to have it, we can get for you one order. It's a lentil soup. Yes. Okay, I'll get it when you sit at the table. The lentil and the navy beans we eat. This is a fresh But not a lime beans or black eyed peas. This is what the messenger teaches. This is a fresh tandoori chicken from the clavy oven. I had it before, it's okay. You had it before? Okay. Did you play a part in having Malcolm get killed? I could have if I wanted to. So it's a lentil with the yellow color. He put it right there. But I don't know who killed him. I know the message didn't. I know I didn't order it, you know. Nobody from the FBI or local authority. They never asked us anything about it. They've written in their papers that we ordered for Malcolm to be killed, but we didn't. You know, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was a wise man. But he wouldn't do such a stupid thing as to order someone, you know, to be killed. Malcolm, anyone else. It hadn't been for the messenger saying, leave him alone, that he would have been killed sooner than he was. The key to understanding Malcolm's case is that from the very beginning, no one in the power structure gave a damn about what happened. His assassination was widely reported in the media, especially the white media. But there was almost a sense that they were gloating, a sense of glee that he had it coming, like he almost deserved this. It's clear even in the New York Times, in February of 1965, that white authorities and most white newsmen didn't take this killing all that seriously. 
that from their perspective, it's some intra-gang warfare among radical black extremists. That, that they don't value what Malcolm's life represented. But the real bottom line to, to everything we have here is that white prosecution authorities have never across this entire chunk of time, decades of time, taken a serious interest in investigating, pursuing, solving Malcolm's murder. For Abdurrahman Muhammad, this has been a very lonely crusade because time and again he's had people who have some initial interest and again and again they've decided not to go forward. But Abdurrahman has, has never given up. He's still on the case. After I became a Muslim, I started moving in certain circles. And over the years, I started meeting people who knew things about the assassination, you know, who could talk firsthand about it. You know what I mean? I was like one or two people removed from actually being able to get certain information. You are sitting in a place that in its history, from the Nation of Islam under the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, that when he started... That's when I realized that, you know, hey, if I started asking the right questions, I could get some very significant answers. And if you were commanded to, you had to have a car in your apartment. But one of the things that you learn quickly is you can't ask a question too directly. If you ask a question too directly, you could be suspect, you know? Because then the question would become, why are you asking that, brother? Assalamu alaikum, sister. Alhamdulillah. When Malcolm first got here, was there any inkling or any idea that maybe he was having a problem with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad or, because uh, I know 63. Once I would learn something and I would file it away and I connect this dot with that dot or at least be pointed in a certain direction. You know, and it became more and more apparent to me that if anybody could break it, it would be me. Most serious historians believe there were five men who were the actual assassins. According to my research, I believe those assassins didn't come from Harlem, as the police claimed. And I also believe that something has been covered up. We have at least one FBI document that gives a, you know, a perfect description of the man that they say fired the shotgun. They described him to a T. Burly, big, dark-skinned man wearing a certain kind of coat. Complete opposite of the man they convicted. So someone in the government must have known that they might be convicting the wrong person, and they let it happen. And I think that it's only by looking deeply into Malcolm's life that the clues as to who actually killed him and who knew it was coming can be found. You are not only honoring Malcolm in the sunshine, but in the rain. And the prayer is that you're not only honoring him on his birthday, 
but every day with the work that you do in the name of El Haj Malik El Shabazz, in the name of freedom and black liberation, because that is how we truly honor Malcolm. And we say we love Malcolm X, El Haj Malik El Shabazz. We love him so much. We name high schools and institutions after him. He's one of our greatest heroes. You don't scare Negroes today with no badge or no white skin or no white sheet or no white anything else. Yet the real killers, the real culprits, both those who actually fired the trigger and those who were, let's say, the puppet masters of the whole thing, were never brought to justice. But if you can't prove that a democracy is not hypocrisy, then don't put your hands on me. There's no statute of limitations on murder. There's no reason why this case cannot be looked at again. That is, you know, my mission. That is my purpose. As long as someone is still out there, you know, there, there is a chance still to get justice for Malcolm. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. And welcome back to BTR News with Scotty Reed. Uh, we have just got through listening to the first episode. I believe there are about seven or eight, or as many as eight. Um, we'll probably do episode two tomorrow night, God willing, and I'm physically able um, to do it. Um, one quick thing before I go to my notes, but uh, also if you have a question or a comment, you can give us a call at 704-802-5056. That's 704-802-5056. Those already on the line, uh, hit star star. Uh, that will unmute you if you're just hanging on to listen. Um, that's cool as well. Um, but one thing I should have mentioned at the beginning um, of this broadcast when I was talking about uh, Malcolm's influence after death on me by way of, you know, videos and uh, reading different stuff that had been written about him. Um, I never really got into, you know, his assassination 
and what have you. Um, never really came across a, a lot of material talking about it. Now, some people I've talked to uh, on the phone today was telling me about uh, different books that that touch upon it, but I never came across uh, those books. But um, the reason Black Talk Radio Network exists, really the main reason, it was inspired by Malcolm X. I had came across, I had always, already was into talk radio, but as a listener, listening to terrestrial radio, and I was listening to right-wing radio, and it's not that I agree with anything that they said, but it would, it would just intrigue me, hearing people's different opinions, hearing these talk radio hosts sharing their thoughts, and, and I'm like, you know, if I want to know what these these white people thinking, these right-wing racist white people thinking, I, you know, I can hear it straight from their mouths and what have you. So, you know, I had always, uh, and then on my jobs, different jobs I had, if I could listen to the radio, I listened to talk radio um, at that period in my life. Um, this was after I got out the military, but at that period of my life, I, I listened to talk radio before I listened to the music and stuff like that, you know, at work or whatnot, because I'm all I'm always trying to learn something and get, gain some insight into politics, because when I was in the military, I went in in 1987, and I was stationed in Hawaii, and I remember hearing a news report, um, I don't know if I, we were watching on TV or heard it on the radio or something, but they were talking about invading Panama at the time. And it just struck me at that moment that, you know what, I need to pay attention to uh, these news reports and, and this political talk stuff because I'm in the military and they could be talking about me getting ready to get sent somewhere off to die, you know, or kill somebody, which would be, you know, just as bad as, well, I ain't going to say just as bad, but, you know, I, I do value human life. Um, I did used to be a gangbanger when I was a teenager in, in Detroit. Um, glad my mom got me out that life by bringing us back here to North Carolina. Um, I never killed anybody up there, but you know, um, that's why I start paying attention, really paying attention is because I knew that the president of the United States and these politicians could, could, uh, you know, make decisions to send me anywhere in, in the world. So I really started paying a, paying attention to talk radio, I, I would say, you know, around 87 and, and what have you. And even some of my friends today that I'm connected with through Facebook, some of my soldier friends, we still talk. But even back, back then, as young men in our early 20s, we would sit around talking politics. I remember when, um, you know, Rodney King got beat down by them cops and then, you know, the rebellion happened in L.A., we were asking questions, talking about, now, what if they, we know we active duty, so it's likely they're going to deploy the National Guard, but what if, what if they told us we had to go to L.A. and help put down the, the rebellion, and what What would you do? You know, we were asking ourselves questions like that in our early 20s, and, and um, so then when I got out the military and I really got into the Internet, and discovered talk radio through the internet. And, you know, that's when I uh, uh, start coming across Malcolm X, other speeches and what have you. And he talked about the power of media on our YouTube channel, which also launched in 2008. 
you will find a video, one of the first videos uploaded. I think it's the very first video was Malcolm being interviewed by this white reporter. And he was talking about the power of the media. He was talking about the media uh, has the power to, to make them love who they want and hate who they want. And he was talking about World War II and he was talking about how during the war, World War II, the Chinese and the Russians were our friends. And then after the war, and, and the uh, Germans and the Japanese were our enemies. And then after the war, the media flipped the script. And now all of a sudden, oh, we friends with the Japanese and the Germans, and now we hating on the Russians, our former allies in, in China, you know, also former allies uh, in, in, in um, you know, the war in the Pacific and, and what have you. And that just really struck a note with me. And then he was talking about if the U.S. media was used properly, they could teach white people to stop hating on black people and then also teach black people how to do something for themselves instead of sitting around waiting on somebody to come along and do something for, for them. And I was like, man, he's right. The media is that powerful. Let me go Let me go ahead and jump into this internet radio thing. And then as I explained at the beginning of the program, we got kicked off, well, not kicked off, but banned for a week. They only ended up being three days on Blog Talk Radio simply for having the name Black Talk Radio. And then when that happened, I was like, I can't let them silence our voices because it was more than just me. It was several of us on that on that station on Blog Talk. Um, and it's still there as well. Black Talk Radio, we still, all our archives from way back when is still there. We still got a huge following because I still upload podcasts to our account, which we don't even have to pay for anymore because we were, I was one of the first ones. Uh, when it first launched and they kind of grandfathered me in and then plus since we have a huge audience um, they offered me a free account when I suspended my paid account because I couldn't afford it not enough donations coming in so I'm gonna just have to you know distribute off our own platform and and just leave you know our audience we built up over the years over there and you know they could just come over here and so when I suspended it you know they gave me a free account um, to keep distributing our podcast, which I I still do. But when that happened, man, I was like, I felt sick to my stomach. And uh, I was like, this is too important for me to just stop or let them have this kind of power over our voices like that. And thus, Black Talk Radio was born. The platform was born. And, and that, that was because of Malcolm telling me in a video after his death, after his assassination, of how powerful media is. So, you know, I should have mentioned that at the beginning of the program. I've mentioned it to people over the years, but, you know, um, um, you know, that is why Black Talk Radio Network exists, due to him inspiring me and teaching me after death uh, how important media is and how powerful it is. And, you know, for those that have visited the platform, you will see that we've been ranked the number one independent black digital radio and podcasting platform in the world. You know, I, they did a top 25, this one uh, research firm, marketing firm, did, did, did their research on black podcasters and what have, and we got ranked number one. And um, we'll see if we will maintain that number one position when they come out with the top 25 list 
uh, in for 2020. Um, now, I did write down a couple of, uh, of some notes, but before I get into my notes, I want to acknowledge uh, Brother Kwabanai Rasuli um, of Clear the Airwaves uh, channel. Y'all have heard him on. He's no, he's no uh, stranger to Black Talk Radio Network, and, you know, he's always supported me financially and, you know, with words of encouragement. And I had asked him if he had a chance to call in tonight because he saw the realization of one of his efforts come through. I believe it was this year. It might have been late last year. But Brother Kwabana, you know, I, uh, congratulations to getting a street named after Malcolm X in Gary, Indiana. And, you know, I know, I think if I remember reading correctly, you had started uh, lobbying for that as a young activist back in, in the 80s or 90s. I, I believe it was the 90s, but welcome in. Um, let me hear your thoughts, bro. Hey, Scotty, how you doing, brother? Yeah, I'm surviving behind the enemy lines. All right, right on, man. Yeah, appreciate your support, too, man, for all these years with the Clear the Airways Project. But yeah, it was 1999, actually, when we, uh, when we got the petition from Malcolm X Street and Gary. We were like, man, this city's ninety percent black. It's going to be a no-brainer. So we wrote it, wrote it up, and uh, it, was, it was funny because the two brothers that were with us who were from here, they're like, man, you just don't know, dude. You, you, it ain't going to be that easy. And even listening to that, never thought it would be twenty years, but we finally got it at the uh, in December of last year. So we just had a lot of support from uh, different organizations, different groups like CDOP, like the Flaming Crescent Society, out of. Um, out of Chicago, uh, Black Lives Matter, Gary, I did a lot of help in finally getting it done. And so, yeah, we, we got it done. The mayor actually ended up doing an executive order at the end of the year. We were pretty close to getting it, but she did that executive order, and it, it came out. We had like 4,000 signatures, man. It's like, if we asked 10 people to sign a petition, nine of them signed it right away. Malcolm X? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not right away, but we just kept getting um, pushback from administration and even mayors who had signed the signed the petition, you know, come oh, we'll give you honoraries. No, we don't want Malcolm need no honorary, no pork chop preacher. We named the streets after him. So they so she finally did that and she uh she named it uh because it's a couple of different streets that like stay continuous, keep flowing, but she called it's gonna be called Malcolm X Drive. So we got a little fancy title to it, Malcolm X Drive, running north and south through Gary. Now the bad part about it is that the street is in, you know, it's in conditions here are so horrible, so horrible in the city. But uh, you know, when when Ilyasa, hopefully we'll get Ilyasa out here when she comes and rides down the street, she might come back and pop me upside the head because the street is in such so uh, such bad condition. But it's it's a street that runs all throughout the city, so mm -hmm. that's a good thing. And Scotty, to add to that, uh, at the time when she uh, was getting that done, Mayor Hatcher had passed away. Mayor Richard Hatcher, who was uh, along with Carl Stokes, who was one of the first black mayors of a big U.S. city, uh, or along with Carl Stokes in Cleveland, but he transitioned, and she also uh, did an executive order to rename a street in honor of uh, Mayor Richard Hatcher, which was long overdue also, which is another petition we had. So we got, she did two things, Mayor Cameron Flynn and Wilson, before she left office. But man, that, that document, oh, go ahead. But why was that important to you? I mean, I know why, you know, and it's important to me as well. Um, but why Why was that something that you kept pushing for over 20 years, man? I mean, that's a big chunk of time. Many people would have gave up. 
man, it was tough, man. And, and you know, the, the sister, oh, man, oh, what's her name? Uh, she was speaking just now in the documentary uh, when they do the, I think it's the annual birthday visit to the graveside of Malcolm. She worked with Sickle Odinga. Her name escapes me right now, but she, she was speaking on the documentary and talking about how, you know, you pretty much need to do his work and his example. And that's what, that's how you honor Ma Malcolm. And that's how you, just like you honored Malcolm by the re reason we're speaking right now by, you know, having our own independent media, Black Talk Media Network. And so our city struggling as such, you know, we said we need an example of Malcolm and his uh, evolution, his constant growth. This is what we need in the city. Not just, just to have a name, but we need people who remember his name and remember, remember his works and study his work, study what he's done, what he did, and what he continues to do. I think about Thomas Sankara, you know, the uh, great uh, revolutionary in Burkina Faso. You know, he said, wait, you can't kill ideas. And Malcolm's ideas and what he says, you know, just listen to him just now, uh, you know, during that documentary, man. It's just like the brother said who did it. It's just inspiring. It's just his power, you know, it's just so, so beautiful. And that's what we need to hear. We need to love each other, man. We had like 58 murders this year in Gary. There's been murders, uh, it's been the murder capital of the U.S. before population went down so low that they don't count it as much. But but Malcolm, you know, can help us to uh, to evolve, man, and become better people as we listen to him and study his lessons. So that's why it's so important. And that's what we're going to continue to emphasize as we get close to the ceremony of, um, of naming the street, uh, renaming the drive after Malcolm. You know, um, I grew up in Detroit. I was born, you know, uh, where I'm at right now. I was born down here in North Carolina. But my mom traveled with, like a lot of, you know, black people from the South migrated to the North for jobs. And her, one of her older brothers had went before her. Um, and then, you know, she followed him and we stayed with them for a while till she got, you know, some, some uh, her feet on the ground. And, you know, then we got our own place and what have you. But I, I still remember the mosque, and, and it's still there today that Malcolm established, you know, uh, in that neighborhood that I lived. It was like, it was maybe about maybe six or seven blocks from where um, we were staying, uh, right up the street from the middle school that I used to go to called Winter Halter. And, you know, I remember uh, people telling me, you know, that that's, you know, uh, Malcolm established that mosque and, and what have you. And uh, but the reason for me is it, what you did and other people who have done this and named it not just after Malcolm streets after Malcolm, but other people, uh, black leaders and what have you. For some young people, that might pique their interest. Well, who's Malcolm yeah. X? Why is there? A, and then they might look them up since we got the internet now. And they might look them up. You know, back then I couldn't I couldn't log on as a young kid and go on the internet and look up videos and speeches and stuff like that. And definitely, you know, even though I was going to a predominantly black school, they ain't never teach us nothing about Malcolm or or Martin <laughs> even at that time. You know, because they definitely didn't have a holiday after uh, after Martin. You know, at, back in the seventies and the eighties, when I was in in well, I should say the eighties when I uh, no, it was in the seventies when I was in middle school, late uh, 77, 78, 79. And, you know, uh, that was the first time I had heard Malcolm X's name stated. But, you know, I didn't learn really about him until I got into my 20s, uh, getting Alex Haley's biography 
And and then so you know it's important because some child who not going to get that curriculum in school. Maybe their parents, like my mom, wasn't, you know, real Afrocentric or consciousness. I mean, we wore dashikis and Afros and all of that. But, you know, she wasn't really no militant black person or, or any, she just an average, everyday uh, working working person trying to do the best she could for her children and what have you. And so, you know, I think it's naming these streets after people is important because you never know what child may see that or even an adult and say, let me, yeah, Malcolm X, let me find out more about him. So that's why I think it's important. It's in addition right. to you, what you were saying. Yeah, you, you're so right, man. And, and those are the reasons why it's so important. You know, just to see, I know we're on the first part, but just, you know, they went over the assassination. And then for them to do that in front of his children, you know, at all. I was right thinking the same thing, Kwabana. I was thinking the same thing. His wife, his children, and then not just his wife and children, but there were other people. In, you know, I imagine, I don't know if there was other children there, but still, though, you know, it, it, it's just, oh, man, it, it makes me angry, Kwabana. Yeah, it should teach us a lesson in fanaticism and how dangerous that is and, you know, and zealots and all like that, man. It's just... It, I don't know, bro. And then idolatry. There's a book. Yeah, idolatry. There's a book called The Judas Factor from Carl Evans. That's an excellent book on, on the assassination of Malcolm X, too. I mean, these, these, this whole series is, you know, is definitely worth looking at, but you got to critically analyze everything. So check out The Judas Factor. Check out Zach Kondo's work uh, uh, on, uh, on Malcolm X. And even and just the more you know, because there was another feed, people were talking about this on social media, and someone had mentioned how uh, he didn't like Dick Gregory. I guess because Malcolm had said the thing about they'd be picking these entertainers and people as our leaders. Mm-hmm. So somebody took that to, as to say he didn't like Dick Gregory. And I had to like, man, you know, y'all got to read, man. If you read Malcolm X Speaks, or just other things, you'll see that he had Dick Gregory and Fannie Lou Hamer uh, speaking at the Audubon Ballroom before some of the OAAU uh, public meetings. So he had a lot of respect for Dick Gregory. Right, I mean, they, that's that's called not being able to critically think about something. It wasn't that he was saying anything bad about Dick Gregory, but he was talking about who the white establishment tries to pick our leaders for us. Yeah, yes. That's what he was talking about. And, you know, I got a, a good story before I, before I go to it. Was I was reading Malcolm X speak on my first trip to Africa. I was with the African-African-American Summit with Leon Sullivan. They just had any and everybody was on that trip. That was my first trip. And uh, on the plane to South Africa, I just happened to be sitting right, Big Greg was sitting right behind me. And so as I was reading the book, I came to that section of the book when they were uh, at the Audubon in Fannie Lou Hamer. And, I was, and Big Gregory's name came up. And I said, hey, brother, look, look what I'm reading right now. <laughs> so I gave it to him. He started reading it. And then he just started talking about Malcolm's death. He said, you know, he said they had warned him. They said, man, don't go. Stay away from there. They go to California. I think Maya Angelou or somebody was in Cali or I don't know if she was in Africa at the time or Cali. Somebody was had invited him out there to get away from all that. And he said when the news report came on, he just turned the TV off. He said he didn't want to see it. You know, that he was covered, at, and, and that's part of my notes. Um, and, you know, stay as long as you can, bro. I understand if you got to go. But, um, you know, the first thing I wrote, the first two things that I wrote in my notes uh, for this first episode kind of speak to that. But 
when it first came on, they was talking about his enemies. And, you know, he was marked for death and he knew he was marked for death, you know. And and he talked about, you know, like they was going to kill him and his time was short. And even Martin Luther King even said something similar. Now, my mom, you know, as she got older, she started, you know, reading a little bit about that stuff and, and what have you. And she said to me from a Christian, from a Christian perspective, which I am a Christian, about speaking words and words having power and that they made the mistake of co-signing their deaths with their words. So that's a spiritual thing. I don't know if people can understand that, you know, but like you say, if a person say, like she talks about one of my aunts all the time who always, every time you around it, where's my great, well, it's not really my aunt, it's my cousin. It's her first cousin, my second cousin, and she always sickly, but she always saying she's sick. Oh, I'm just sick and, and all this and that. And yeah. my mom be saying she need to get her words right and stop agreeing with that sickness. But that's a spiritual thing, neither here or there. But then, but to know, you know, both him and Martin to know that, you know, they were marked for assassination to still do the work, to still do the work. Yeah. And then they talked about at the first, in the first part, of it when he was uh, invited speakers to you know that particular uh, meeting that day that nobody came because everybody was scared but yet he still I mean that just speaks to his fearlessness and his commitment you know and and courage man to know because I mean how, how many people I mean there's people who won't even talk about it today Talk about his death and his assassination because they afraid of what somebody might try to do to them because, you know, it's still some zealots out there and, and, and what have you. Some idolaters is what I call them. Um, and so, you know, that kind of spoke to what you were saying about Dick Gregory uh, not going and people telling him to stay away from Malcolm. Yeah, and what, no, and him, t- no, him. He was telling Malcolm to stay away too. Oh, he so, was to get out of there. But like you said, but he said Malcolm said, "No, nah, I'm a, I'm you know, I got this work to do. I got to build this organization. I got to build these organizations, and you know, we got work to do. I got to go to Africa next week and meet these brothers in Africa. I think they killed one of the brothers in Africa too. He was supposed to meet with. So man, it's uh, yeah, bro. I mean, I appreciate you, man, for for doing this. You know, we sharing it, and that's good. To have. You know, something else is cool about listening to this on the radio. It's just, it's just something that's good about that, you know, because you don't get that much anymore, like stories like this on the radio. Just to see it on TV the other day and then to hear it on the radio, it just uh, brings a whole new, like a throwback. So as, I appreciate that, too. I'm glad you decided to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. Because I know everybody, the reason I decided to do it, because I know everybody don't have a Netflix subscription and I just think you know that this is uh, an important, it's getting mixed reviews but I've heard more people speak positively about it than negatively about it but of course you know it's going to be some stuff left out that perhaps the producer didn't think of or just didn't want to go there you know but I still think it's worth to bring this information to people who may not know anything about it, you know, uh, knowledge, not, you know, I, I think that we should always strive to get as much information as possible. Yes, indeed, man. Viva Malcolm X, man. Viva his, his, uh, his life. And he's going to live on. We, as we were getting ready to finally get the street name after Malcolm going with the zoning committee and these people talking to him, 
I mean, we were doing a research, one of the top 50 people of anybody in the, in the, in the uh, U.S. in the last century. Malcolm X right up in there. <laughs> one of the few Africans in there. Well, Malcolm X is right there. So, uh, man, that, that spirit lives on, man, and we'll be in touch, brother. All we'll right. All right, peace to you. Peace. All right, that was Brother Kwabana Rasuli, longtime friend of the network. Um, check him out. If you're on Facebook, just put in the search engine, clear the airways project, um, and you'll find it. Um, also, um, now, I'm just go down through my notes again. If, if you have some thoughts that you would like to share on this, you can give us a call, 704-802-5056. 704-802-5056. Hit the star key twice to unmute yourself. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just going down in the order that it was brought up. But when they talked about his house being bombed and, and we also heard like the police tried to say that he bombed his own house and, and what have you. And uh, but his house being firebombed. And the first thought that came to my mind, if I if I remember correctly, is that when he was a child and his father was still alive, that his house was firebombed. But we know that that was a frequent tactic of terrorists, white racist terrorists, Ku Klux Klan, or, or even if they didn't even have an affiliation to the Klan in an organized fashion like that, just being full of hate and, and evil and terrorists. And I'll just, the first thing that came to my mind, damn, here, here we got some black folks acting like the Klan and bombing black people's house like that. And, you know, that just, that kind of uh, stood out to me. And then as we were speaking earlier about idolatry, um, you know, um, Elijah Muhammad, they were being taught that he was a deity, that he liked God, you know, a uh, 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 prophet, but deified and what have you. And it's still people today, man. They you they hear you saying anything that they don't agree with about Elijah Muhammad. Um, they will get angry. They may even threaten to kill you or or what have you. And I remember years ago. Now this was when Black Planet had first launched, and I was on Black Planet, because I was on Black Planet before I discovered blog talk radio and internet radio, but Black Planet was one of the first uh, and probably the only uh, black social media network. This was before Facebook, this was before Twitter, this before they had Black Planet, then they had one for Latinos called Magenta, and I was on Black Planet, and you know, I was in these different groups and what have you, and I come across this uh, uh, this Muslim, and I was talking about it, talking about Malcolm's murder and whatnot. And this dude threatened me, man. And I had told one of my female cousins who I grew up with in Detroit, me and her, she was one year older than me. Um, but she was born in December, so we were in the same grade because uh, I was born in November. And so we, even though she is a year older than me, we ended up being in the same grade. Um, and, and one year with the school together and she, you know, and we're both adults, adults at that time. So this was probably back. Let me see. 2006, 2007, probably 2006 or, or somewhere between 2004, 2005. And she, and I was telling her about, you know, how this dude was coming at me and she was saying, you better be careful, Scotty, them, them black Muslims to do something to you. And like that, right. 
And and so, you know, I they apparently got a reparations, but anybody that know me and she do know me, I don't bite my tongue for nobody. Okay? I don't bite my tongue for nobody. Um, but also like I was talking about in the beginning of the show, how I used to idolize Malcolm X, but then I was like idolatry that's idolatry i'm taught you know as a christian that when you worship human beings or you worship you know uh totem poles and in statues and stuff like that that's a sin you know and, and god don't like that and and especially human beings worshiping them as like they gods or something you know and you even hear some muslims today the got the black gods and, and all this and that and um you know that's idolatry that's idolatry, and I quit. I I quit looking at Malcolm in that way, and started looking at him as an inspiring leader, and quit idolizing, putting him on the level of I would put a god. Okay, and that's why I say I quit using the word I I idolize him to I greatly admire him because he's just a man. He's just a man, but you know idolatry. Um, I believe that's what led to his death. Um, there are some other factors that hopefully they'll get into. Um, I know some people been sharing some stuff with some direct knowledge, um, in contact with some of the people who may or may not have been involved and they've been sharing some insightful stuff on Facebook and, and what have you. And they were saying, you know, they didn't touch upon this or touch, touch upon that. Now they talked about the FBI fearing Malcolm. Um, I don't think, I, I can't remember right now. My short term memory gone. If they mentioned, um, COINTELPRO, you know, when the FBI was talking about, uh, fearing this black Messiah that will be able to unite black people, uh, to stand up for themselves and not be in these different factions because, you know, as much as we like to talk about black unity, the fact is we ain't never really been unified. Maybe when we were on plantations and in slavery, that was probably the best time, the mo the, um, the only time we were really, really unified against a common enemy. But after that, after the civil war, um, people start going their own way, you know, and, 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 and creating, you know, then you got a new religion created and, and then we get into factions and what, ha and what have you. Um, and so the FBI was fearing that. I mean, that's why they took, took out Marcus Garvey. And then interestingly, it was a black hand who played a role in that. The first black, uh, FBI agent was assigned to infiltrate, uh, Marcus Garvey's uh, thing. So they had long been fearing a black messiah type, a godlike figure, even though we don't want to get into idolatry, um, that could unite a substantial number of us to work towards the same goals. And so, you know, um, many people will, that's their stated reason, but that's what the FBI said in, in their memos, documents, and what have you put out by J. Edgar Hoover. But I have a different theory. I have a different theory. Towards the end of Malcolm's life, if you ever watch his speeches where he travels to England and the Oxford debates and what have you, after he had went on his hodge in Saudi Arabia, had a spiritual transformation, I believe he became a Sunni. 
uh, a Sunni Muslim. You know, they got different denominations, just like Christians got different denominations. Um, but then, as in his words, he said he started thinking for himself. And as I started uh, talking at the beginning of the program, I was like, that's one of the things I most admired about him because even as a young man and then getting up into his 30s when you didn't spend so much time in an organization especially a religious organization with with such you know fervent views and stuff but then when you get new information and you process that information and you think on that information and then you you are I guess intellectually mature enough to then change your views according to that new information, if it's correct information, you know. And that's one of the things I most admired about him because, you know, uh, um, not only his transformation from a petty, petty, you know, thief and what have you, committing crimes of survival, um, which a lot of us ha- have to do even to today, you know, it kind of reminded me of myself when I was, uh, uh, and I was younger than Malcolm out there gang banging and selling drugs and what have you, obviously influenced by people older than me in my environment. But for him to go from the street life to the religious life, to the organizing uh, uh, against, you know, white violence and all of that, and then even transform another transformation, spiritual transformation, and then a worldview change. You know, that's what really impressed me. So I believe when he started appealing to these young white people, these young, not the old ones, you know, some old people, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But uh, reading his biography, you may recall if you read it, that he was once approached when he started the old AAU uh, organization for African American Unity or Afro American Unity. He was approached by a young white girl, college student, saying, you know, how she wanted to support that organization. And he was saying, well, you can't join, you know, and he was telling her, you know, this and that. And then later he came to regret that and, and telling her of uh, that. And he was like, well, y'all can't join, but you can support us financially. You know, and then he gives his speeches at Oxford where he talks about believing in the brotherhood of humanity. And and then he was saying that he'll join in with anyone, anyone. And he talked about the young white youth, anyone that will uh, willing to uh, change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. OK, so I feel like. As long as you're talking that isolationist stuff, you ain't no threat. But as soon as you start having, like the, as they say in music, that crossover appeal, and then these young white folks start listening to, remember who, uh, um, Hoover, no, it was Nixon that started the drug war, but Hoover was still at the FBI, I believe, at that time when Nixon was in office. He might have passed away by then. I'm not sure. But anyway, they not only did Nixon say he was starting a drug war to target black people, but he was also talking about targeting these anti-war, anti-Vietnam war hippies, smoking dope and smoking pot and all of that and what have you, and targeting them as well. That's what they feared. They feared a a multiracial coalition. That's why the Black Panther Party don't exist to this day. That's why they assassinated Fred Hampton. 
because he was able to speak to people outside of the community that didn't look like him and see and make them see, hey, you might be doing a little bit better than me. You might be a couple of rungs up the ladder in, in, in terms of resources and, and finances and, and what have you. But at the end of the day, you the man still got his boot on your neck too. You know, like Martin was talking about um, in a speech that I had made a clip of and sent a tweet out before I got banned from Twitter, but that was a, that's an, another story. But I, where he had given a speech, and I had never seen this speech. I, I don't know if he was, I think he was in Philadelphia at the time, or Washington, D.C. He was in a city up north, and it was a crowd of white people. And he was giving one of his anti-Vietnam uh, war speeches, because he had said, I can no longer, you know, tell people to be nonviolent against a violent system while not speaking out against the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, which is the U.S. government. And he talked about how they were sending not only just black youth to die on the battlefield of Vietnam, but the working class white youth. Because we know uh, we, we know these political leaders like George Bush and and Donald Trump and you know they were young men at that time but they had they were they had their families had well and got them out of it they didn't have to go die on the battlefield killing non-white people and so you know Malcolm was also saying similar things and I think that's why they assassinated King and assassinated uh uh allowed Malcolm X to be assassinated because I know they had a role in it. And then if you listen to the uh, secret recording Malcolm did when Elijah Muhammad suspended him for saying after JFK's assassination that, the, you know, the U.S., and I'm paraphrasing the U.S. doing all this violence around the world, this is your chicken coming home to roost. You know, in, in a biblical sense, you reaping what you sow. He ain't say nothing about the Bible, but, you know, same concept. And then he got suspended. So while he's on suspension sitting up in his home, he has secret recording uh, uh, equipment and he gets a visit by the FBI and the FBI trying to recruit him to be uh, to uh, be a uh, informant inside of the mosque. And it was like, oh, y'all didn't split up this. Let's let's exploit this split between him and Elijah. Let's recruit him to spy for us and all that. But they told him. They told Malcolm that we already got people in there. We already got people in there. And so just like they had a black agent who helped take down Garvey, okay? And I believe some of them, them, them informants in the Nation of Islam were speaking against Malcolm and talking about killing, killing him. So I, I am not going to dismiss, and again, I don't know if it's going to be covered in this video or, or, or this documentary or what, but I do not absolve the system, the, 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 the people in power. I do not absolve them racists uh, from his assassination. They didn't have to pull the trigger. But, you know, it's a shame that we allow white power to get us to do harm to one another. That's just a shame. I mean, I was talking about it today, Bloomberg paying people, uh, black people, to promote him when he did much harm 
to black people as a mayor in New York City. And he has supported uh, uh, racist Republicans and what have you. But, oh, as an influencer on social media, oh, uh, let me get this $150 and I'll, I'll tweet an ad out in support of Michael Bloomberg. You know, a sell, selling out, man. And that's, I mean, you shouldn't sell out for any amount, but $150, really? You're going to betray the trust of your your uh, followers on social media for, for $150? That's your price? What else might you do? What else might you do? Okay? So, I mean, it's just a shame. And I, I, I'm right now on the line from uh, one of my favorite rap groups who also put me on to Malcolm and pique my interest, but public enemy. And that line, welcome welcome to the Terror Dome, where it goes, you know, the hand of a nigger pulled the trigger, the shooting of Huey Newton. The hand of a nigger pulled the trigger, you know, and he they mentioned Malcolm, you know, as well. I can't remember the exact lyrics, but that's one of my favorite all-time uh, uh, tracks by Public Enemy is Welcome to the Terror Dome and they talk about that and it's still going on today we sell out for a position whether you inside the government you know as a politician or you outside of it you know uh, trying to make some money and what have you it's too many people who can be bought Okay, it's too many people who can be bought. So I am by no means trying to resolve white people's uh, re, uh, 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 culpability in all of this. So, but my point was is that they didn't fear him as long. Well, they might have had some concern, but they didn't really fear him when he was in the NOI. Okay. Because remember, they killed eight Muslims in at the Los Angeles mosque. Malcolm wanted to do something about it. He wanted to take revenge out on them cops. And Elijah Muhammad told him, no, you ain't going to do nothing. Allah will repay. But y'all pick at Christians and stuff when they talk about God will repay. I mean, that's biblical scripture. It tells you not to seek out revenge. Well, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, 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 ain't, I ain't took that lesson the heart, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll do something to you, especially if you do something to one of my family members. But anyway, they didn't fear him, man. They, they didn't. They didn't fear him. Long as we was talking about, you know, not putting pressure on the government and doing for doing so called doing for self. I don't see how you're gonna do for self and you ain't got nothing, you know. But you know, um, long as he was. Preaching that and the white man is the devil. Oh, they weren't gonna lay a hand on him. But as soon as he started talking about the brotherhood of humanity and and talking about how he sees a coming clash not between black and white, but the oppressed versus the oppressor. And there's plenty of black oppressor. It was a black president who destroyed Libya, one of the most prosperous pan-Africanist nations in Africa, and murdered Gaddafi. You know, so, so yeah, man, I, I tell you, man, oppressors come in many colors, you know, and even uh, there's some video of Fred Hampton Jr. of the Black Panther Party before his assassination was talking about that. And, uh, but anyway, going on, um, no, just a shame, man, you know, I talk a lot, I ain't going to say a lot, but usually when I bring on Krabina, uh to talk about Clear the Airways Project, we talking about the music that's programming black people to kill each other. 
You know, if you people gonna ain't everybody ain't gonna agree. Everybody ain't gonna see eye to eye. But is it that deep that you got to kill somebody for stepping on your shoes or looking at your woman or out here hustling on the wrong corner and you gonna do a drive by shooting and don't care who you hit? That's programming. That's programming. And it's just a shame that people talk about you know all of this unity. But we often, that's why I love Brother Quabner. One of the reasons I love Brother Quabner is he ain't afraid to call him out because a lot of people, they don't talk nothing. They ain't got no problem with this violent programming telling us to shoot N-words in the face and to mistreat our, our, our women. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't imagine that's ever going to go away. Only thing we could do is probably just work like he's working to re, get rid of that programming and and we can perhaps prevent young people from being infected with that mindset, you know, that they just will take another human being's life, you know, w without rhyme or reason, no good reason to do that. So, I mean, that's another thing that's so tragic uh, about his, uh, the assassination of, as he's been described, of our shining black prince. Um in my other notes, I talked about Malcolm X speaking on uh, police brutality or the filmmaker was saying that's how he got attracted to Malcolm is because of his experience with police brutality at 14. Now, when I was, I ain't never been a victim. I've been harassed by police maybe once in my life. And I was only 12 years old at that middle school I talked about earlier. I was uh, waiting on my, standing on the corner, waiting on my friends to catch up with me. Cop pull up, just sitting there at the corner, right, you know, right there in front of me. I spit in the grass, and then this cop, this white cop going to say to me, how strong are you? And I'm like, what do you mean how strong I am? Why don't you see if you can pick up that spit? You know, like harassing children, you know what I'm saying? But I ain't never been through nothing like what he went through. You know, I was being terrorized by other black people out there, you know, in that gangbang uh, world and what have you. But I, I did experience white terrorism at a very, very young age in Detroit when me and two of my older cousins, about four years older than me, they were probably 17. No, if I was around 11 at the time, they probably was about 15 or 16. And we walking from one of my cousin's house. And this is probably a couple of miles, but we get out and walk like that. Walking to my house. We was walking from my house to my cousin's house, which probably about five miles away and, and stuff. And I found a, a box on the railroad tracks and I opened up the box. It's got a brand new baseball cap on it. So I'm just a little kid. I put the baseball cap on it. We kept walk, walk, walking. I put it on my head. We kept walking come across a little league baseball team out there practicing. And then they looking at me, talking, oh, he stole one of our hats. And, and they started chasing us, including the grown men with baseball bats, chasing children, chasing children, a mob. And, and so, you know, I can identify with him, you know, feeling that kind of terror at a young age. And by the grace of God, you know, they did not catch me because we even got split up. I got split apart from them. And um, luckily, I beat on this school door 
and this white teacher let me in and, and what have you until they went away. And then I was able to, uh, you know, I knew where I was going and was able to uh, catch back up with my cousins who were, who were looking for me. They didn't just leave me. Um, but we was running for our lives, literally. So I can I can understand being in the back of a police car. I can imagine the terror he, this uh, man, and, and then Malcolm inspi- inspiring him, you know, and it's still going on today. Still going on today. And then we got black people out here talking about voting for Joe Biden, the father of mass incarceration legislation, who was more right-wing, in terms of crime and punishment than Ronald Reagan was. You know, uh, uh, Biden was talking about, and the Clintons was talking about, we're going to be more crime and punishment than the Republicans and what have you, and get that racist white vote. They just want to see black people with the boot on their, the policeman boot on their neck. And then Bloomberg stopping frisk, you know. And you considering, you again, People is taking money from this dude. And I know the struggle is real. We struggling. I'm struggling. A lot of people struggling. Unprecedented poverty in this country. But I'd be damned if I'm going to sell out and, and, and put anything out there in support of a racist for a couple of dollars. You know? And Malcolm had that kind of integrity, man. He wasn't going to sell out. He didn't sell out. They paid informants. He didn't sell out. And so, but that stood out to me, that filmmaker being attacked by the police like that at 14 years old. Um, Let me see. And he spent 30 years of his life investigating this. So, you know, again, this was just the introductory episode and it was some, you know, some important stuff brought up. Um, But we'll see how deep the rabbit hole goes how deep down that rabbit hole hole he will go uh let me see now one of the things when they were in uh playing some of the footage i think it was of a police chief or police captain somebody with some rank that was speaking to the media and they was asked if they had any police there and and the cop said this stood out to me and this is paying attention to detail the cop said he didn't say no we didn't have any police there. He said, no uniform police. So it was undercover cops there. Undercover. And likely black ones. Because how else they going to be undercover? I don't know. I, I You know, I, I couldn't see everybody. I don't know from what I could see. I didn't see any white people in, in, in the um, audience. It could have been. I, and so I could be incorrect. But, you know, they had black cops. Remember, it was a black cop that participated in the assassination of Fred Hampton in Chicago. But that stood out to me. He said, no uniform police. So they had undercover there. They knew that was going to go down. They did nothing to stop it. In fact, you know, I believe the FBI informants in the NOI was probably the ones most in, uh, instigating it. Uh, let me see. Malcolm X, when he went to the police station to view the case files and what have you, um, you know, news reports came out this week that, that um, was it Harlem or the Bronx or whatever DA has jurisdiction over where that took place has reopened the case. 
they have reopened the case, but you know, um, most people probably dead now that, that participated in that. Who who knows? Who knows? But you know, I've heard people try to say, oh, it wasn't it wasn't nobody but the NYPD, white people did it and all that. No, you had black people, eyewitnesses. A light, light public enemy said a black hand squeezed on Malcolm X, the man. The shooting of Huey Newton, the hand from the uh, hand of a nigga pulled the trigger. Okay, so let let let's accept responsibility for what we do as individuals instead of trying to blame everybody else. You know, yeah, Michael Bloomberg can contact me just like. Wells Fargo had a publicist contact me and I can take their money to promote whatever or I can choose not to. We have free will. And I think too many of us try to absolve black people of their own actions. I I, I don't care if a white person plotted it, paid for it or whatever, you pulled the damn trigger. So we are not innocent in this. We are not innocent. Now, one thing I did learn that I had not known, I did not know the black community uh, firebomb that Moss, like they firebomb Malcolm's home with him and his children in there. I did not know that they burn up that Moss like that in, uh, in the Bronx. Um, now, I started getting angry, and when I first tried to watch this documentary a couple of days ago, because again, I'm a great admirer of Malcolm X. The man literally changed my life in death, decades dead, and then changed my life to make me get out the military and, and see myself, you know, in a different way, of how I was being used as a proxy racist, which is a term I coined to describe black people being used as tools willingly to practice racism against other non-white people globally and even other black people, okay? And so, but I started getting mad because, like I said, some of these some of these people, and I ain't got nothing against being militant and, and all of that, okay? If I can go, if I can suit up and boot up, and put a rifle in my hand and go kill for the white man, I definitely would, would do it for my people if a violent revolution was to go down. I'm a lot older now, you know what I'm saying? But I don't love this life, and I'll give my life in the struggle. I don't care, okay? I love my children, I love my grandchildren, and all that, but they'll be okay without me, okay? Uh, uh, but... When Elijah Muhammad started talking about, well, he preached violence, and you heard him in his own words, well, he preached violence, so he died by violence. But you ain't had no problem when he was out there talking that way. The whole time, and we keep seeing these people sharing these clips, the white man is the devil, and we ain't going to turn the other cheek and all this and that. Oh, y'all love it when he was talking that. But then for and every word that came out of Malcolm's mouth, he said, the, uh, Elijah Muhammad teaches us. And after he said he came into his own mind, he even said, everything I said before, I said, this is what I was taught. But then you're going to denounce his violence, his speech that he used to build up 
and recruit a lot of uh, uh, black people. But for you to say that, I know the man dead and, and, and passed on and what have you, but I mean, I had never seen that clip before. Well, he preached violence, so he died violence. But you ain't have a problem with it when he was preaching for you until he said something and it was true about JFK and then, oh, you want to censor him and put a muzzle on his mouth. Come on now. Come on. And talking about we peaceful. He said, oh, we are peaceful people. But then, you know, it pisses me off when as a Christian and we all do not believe the same things and turning the other cheek, we black Christians in the black church signed up for the Civil War put our lives on the line, died and killed to end plantation slavery in this nation. But people want to make us seem like, oh, we punks and we lay down for the white man and, and let people do this. Look, Martin Luther King knew that, that young people out there, that was for a tactical reason to show how vicious these people were. And he felt like we couldn't, we didn't have enough ammunition, we didn't have enough firepower, we didn't have enough manpower to to uh, uh, have a, sex, a successful revolution. I mean, look at the ones who did get slaughtered when they tried to fight back. And, and you know, they are to be commended for going down fighting. I'm talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, we don't hear about the few people who did have some guns and was fighting back until they got killed and, and, and what have you. But then they're always talking trash about Dr. King or being peaceful and all of this. And Malcolm X even apologized for the things he said about Dr. King and what have you. But you heard... Mr. Mohammed talking about we are peaceful people. We don't do violence to nobody. Give me a fucking break. <sighs> Tell you, man. This is why I didn't really want to watch it, but I need to watch it. Because I get in my emotions. And I get angry. That's how much I admire that man. That's how much he means to millions of people. Then for people like him, like him and Martin to uh, lose their lives in the struggle for not just black people, but eventually for all people and fight for justice. Then you had these other people who grow old, become old men and die in their freaking sleep. And then got nerve to put dirt on either one of those men's names. You need to shut the hell up. So, if God willing, tomorrow night I will um, broadcast episode number two. I don't have it up uh, on my screen anymore, so I don't have the name of episode two. But we will do episode two. Tomorrow night is Friday night. Um, we'll try to do three on Saturday night. But on Sunday night, I hope that you will join me and uh, one of my abolitionist comrades for New Abolitionist Radio. Um, since we don't have anybody else that wants to speak, it's no use of me staying on the line. We over two hours. So with that said, please continue to work, uh, help to continue to support the work of the Black Talk Media Project. Donations are tax deductible. We are registered nonprofit. That's how you support 
Black Talk Radio Network and the work that we do. You know, I, I've been doing this work for 12 years. And right now, all we got is Black Talk Radio Network. And as you hear in some of them clips I play, I wanted to create radio stations in black communities all over this nation. But, you know, I can only work with what people uh, put in my hands to work with. And I can't fund it by myself. So, you know, we doing the best that we can with the little bit that we do have. And if you want to see us continue then please make a donation today. You can also um, make a uh, get a subscription to our network where you'll get any posts via email. Um, they'll come straight to your email, and you will have a subscription to our social media platform, btrcommunity.com. With that said, be safe behind these enemy lines and of USA Inc., and really, we in a global war, but do the best that you can to be codified behind these enemy lines. Don't be a coward, but don't be stupid either and, and put yourself uh, and your life and your loved ones in jeopardy for no good reason. All right? Peace and blessings to all. Good night. Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today.